I'd like you to look in two passages with me right quickly up front. To do this is just another prelude to this entire series that I've been doing since back in January on overcoming. And this overcoming series has been, with one exception on the divorce message, where I took it in two parts, there have been one message uh, treatments, and that presents uh, an opportunity and a challenge. And the, the opportunity is what I'd like to present to you now. The opportunity is that first passage is 1 Corinthians in chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10 and 11. Here's the opportunity that a one-time presentation I hope will give, and it is this. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, points out that, and you you do not know that, uh, do you, excuse me, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, and nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. The first desire that I have for a series like this, knowing its limitations and just dealing with the subject tonight, a life-dominating sin, that it is just massive in all the possibilities that could be need to be treated. But I want to come bring this across. There's hope. There's always hope. And that change is possible. Whether it's fear, whether it's jealousy, uh, whether it's anger, you name it. There is hope for change. And of all people, Christians should not be resigning themselves to live in their in spiritual mediocrity and not go on and take on those things that are diminishing our capacity to bring glory to God. The second verse that I want to point out is found in Second Peter and in chapter 1 and in verse 3, which brings me to hope my what I see as an opportunity for this, and that is to provide traction. Traction, that is, some movement forward. Whatever the issue is that, as we've been kicking over these rocks, as it were, over these past few months, we're bound to see something of ourselves in every one of them. Uh, Who do we think we are? We have issues that we need to attend to. Well, listen to this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And the second part of the opportunity is that the power of the Holy Spirit and the all-sufficient word of God is enough to get us moving forward and addressing the hard issues that come to our attention. Hope and traction, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the all-sufficient Word of God. And if you're not convinced of that, then we can throw you, <clears throat> we can throw you lifelines. I mean, we could have a series like this until who knows when. And it won't make any difference. So I pray that it will make a difference. With that said, I want to proceed. Alcohol, anger, exercise, sex, nose drops, caffeine, cocaine, lying, television, nicotine, pornography, weightlifting, love, sleep, sugar, sports, Risk, food, Coca-Cola, shoplifting, Mountain Dew. (laughs) What do these substances and desires have in common? And there is a lot more. I have just sampled the list. They are potential 
taskmasters. We're more familiar with the popular term for this as addiction, and I'm going to address that a little further along. But there are problems with this word, but we get the point. In previous studies, I'll refer to at the end of the study tonight, we've actually dealt with this under the heading of addiction. But the Bible is not silent about the potential ruling power of things that offer us relief, pleasure, escape, satisfaction, excitement, power, happiness, solutions, recognition, success. Are these bad things to desire? No. But they must not be the ruling desires of our life. We have biblical work to do. So what I would like for us to do tonight in this uh, very brief flyby on the subject of overcoming a life-dominating sin is look for addictions in your own heart in life. Now, drugs and alcohol, prototypic addictions, that's probably one of the first things that comes to mind. And I want to expand that, though. What are, and if you... If a beer commercial doesn't really entice you, um, drugs don't really hold a great bit of any power over you, but what are the activities and substances that entice you? Different addictions have different consequences. We know what alcohol and cocaine and meth can do to a person, but are we as informed as what we should be about the nature of life-dominating sins. And it may, may very well be that in a church and in an audience like this that we're not going to personally see ourselves as under the microscope with regard to drugs and alcohol, though it's quite possible. But we've got to do some sorting of things out, and that's what I want to do on the very first point in introduction that we've got to do some vocabulary, give some, um, there's a need for some vocabulary adjustment. As Ed Welch in his book on addiction, A Banquet in the Grave, has said, we're living in a culture where the theory and language of addictions are presently controlled by secular categories. And words like disease, treatment, and even addiction convey the idea that these are problems that have their ultimate cause in the body rather than in the soul, which is contrary to clear biblical teaching. And Christians have succumbed to this as well. The treatment world of AA and other recovery methods, many of which have been adopted by the church. You perhaps have seen signs that advertise varying kinds of, and I'm not uh, condemning all those methods. Some of them may be biblical, I don't know. But many of these methods that the world has uh, uh, developed and have uh, publicized, many of these have been adopted by the church. Well, this brings us to a whole range of problems. Actually, <laughs> we have to deal with what has been called the problems that are induced by therapy itself. That one can have an addiction or a life-dominating sin and then go for treatment somewhere to get help, and then the problem gets compounded because of the remedy that's offered. Maybe some of you are here that way. You read a book, you went to a seminar, or you just talked with someone, and so your thinking about this subject has been confused. Let's take the term addiction. The word addiction itself in popular use, it's a very elastic term. And it's, it's, a, it's an ambiguous category because you look at the things that we put into that category. And we have to distinguish between what are really descriptions and explanations. And addiction is often attached to a biological explanation. That's why if you do come upon a book, Christian material, that deals with this subject, I would say you would hope to find some interaction with the assumptions that are uh, invested in the word addiction. Is it about like, like the word compulsion? 
like there's just something inside of me that makes me do that and over which I have no control. So here's how the dictionary defines addiction. The condition of being a slave to a habit, a strong inclination, is from the Latin word addictus, means to give over to. One of the books that I'll refer to you uh, speak of later, the author, Mark Shaw, he says that addiction is, and redefined in his, in his judgment, as the persistent habitual use of a substance known by the user to be harmful. Now, granted, he is thinking more about alcohol and drugs. We have quite a, a, a range of things we're giving our attention to. And I failed to mention something that was, uh, I should go back and touch on it. But you notice the list that I read to you, all the possibilities of um, shall addictive behavior. Well, we've got to pause and do some prioritization and some, um, um, just get some clarification. Is being addicted to meth and cocaine and alcohol it, does that have the same consequences as being addicted to Breyer's uh, Chocolate Trinity ice cream? No. <laughs> so, I mean, I need to say this up front because some of the things, we begin to think, well, we're dealing with quite a range of things. <clears throat> is, being, is being addicted to Mountain Dew the same as being addicted to marijuana? Well, there are different consequences. But what I hope to show you is that there are some common denominators that go into whatever substance, whatever desire that takes over our life. And that we would recognize the consequences, but recognize also the variation in consequences, but notice also desires and how they must be viewed. All right, I've got two more statements by way of introduction, then we'll get right to it. That enslavement to sinful habits, quote-unquote addictions, is ultimately a disorder of worship. This is not a benign thing. It's who do you worship? Who do you give praise and thanks to and see as the supreme one in your life? Is it God? Or is it some desire? Or is it some substance? Is it some chemical? Thirdly, Sinful habits are an invitation to a banquet in the grave. Now, time's not going to allow me to take us into Proverbs 9, 13 through 18. I'm just going to recap some things that come up out of that passage. And it is the passage that's from which uh, Ed Welch, in his book on addiction, he takes the title, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. And here are some of the issues they come up out of that passage that describe woman folly. He's using figurative language there to describe folly by personification in a woman. And it goes like this, that sin serves meals that will kill you. Sin knows no shame. This is where the woman folly, she's loud and undisciplined and without knowledge. She's without order. Sin's that way. She's loud and seductive and cares for nothing. Sin disguises herself to seduce the unwary. Sin promises what it cannot provide. Sin is an invitation to a banquet in the grave. That's the direction that book sets for us. Now I want us to go and let's move along. I'm going to do my best to get through because... I've got some concluding statements, and then we'll have questions and answers. First of all, overcoming a sin, life-dominating sin, starts with the facing the possibilities in my own life. I hope you're not sitting here thinking about someone that you know who has been addicted to alcohol and drugs, and you may think, I'm good. Uh, well, let's think again. Welch and Shogren, in another book on addiction that I'll say more about later on, they say this, and I quote, Perhaps you have never been strung out on alcohol or another addictive substance, but we all know what it's like to be mastered by our own desires rather than by Christ. No one is exempt. 
what are the ruling desires that you struggle with? And there's no one here who is an exception to this. We all have them. What tends to compete with Jesus for your affections? Uh, a few questions. Try to uh, peel back the layers a little bit. What about when your desire to be loved by your spouse becomes a larger desire than that of loving? What about when your desire for food or drink is more important than what that food or drink does to your body? What about despondency that comes when a message, a Bible lesson that you have prepared and presented, and you are not appreciated? What about when your desire for sexual pleasure becomes the occasion for sex outside of marriage? What about your desire for excitement and entertainment that results in more TV, gaming, and movies? What about your desire for financial security that results in working at the expense of the family and relationships? Question. What is the danger with all desires? One writer put it this way. It's not so much what we want, but how much we want it. We say, if I only had, I could be happy. Work on yourself with that one sometime. We're all cut from the same cloth. And we all share the same struggles. And we have to deal with the same desires, every one of us. There's no temptation taking you such as common to man, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now, it's true that some desires may be stronger in one than in another. Your set of desires may just be off the chart in some areas, but for the other person, they're not so. As I mentioned earlier, if you're dealing with alcohol, if you're dealing with beer, if you've been addicted, and you watch, you watch enough uh, NCAA bracket games, and you watch how they pour the fluids in front of your face, I mean, my, they can even do that with Coke and Coke Zero, you watch the bubbles, you see the ice, you see the frosted black, uh, um, beer and a uh, bottle of beer. And I know of some people, I remember one friend I had years ago who was fighting the problem of addiction to beer. He said to me, he would drive down the road on a hot summer day and look up at the up at the billboard, and he would see a cold beer up there. And he said he just and he was trying to work his way from. He said I cried. He said I just wept there in the automobile. Now, for you, think what's he talking about? It doesn't, doesn't affect me. But we all have similar battles: compulsion to keep one's house neat and organized, hmm. compulsion to eat more than we should. Whoa. Compulsion to watch more television than we should. So, consider the possibilities. Secondly, overcoming a life-dominating sin starts with a recognition of the steps into the slavery of addiction. It doesn't happen overnight. It comes incrementally. Welch and Shogren put it this way, addiction is a habit that takes time to nurture would you like to know how, we, how it's nurtured? Well, let's walk through these steps. Four of them, at least four. First of all, being unprepared. Being unprepared. Thinking, I live during peacetime, not war. Oh, really? <laughs> Do you get my drift here? Uh, Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods. You're reading through the Old Testament. You've read through it lately. You have to have noticed how much God said to Israel about watching out for the idols. Does that strike you as, you think that's bizarre? You think those people, they really had some issues. Just like we do. The idols come in different, uh, in different features and they can come disguised, but they're all the same. Spiritual casualness, a lack of sense of sensitivity to right and wrong. This is what it means to be unprepared. 
For example, wow. Now I'm, I've got a few illustrations in here, and it just occurred to me that I probably ought to pause and give a little disclaimer. I'm, I'm, um, I'm not trying to go after beer. <laughs> and I know there are different views on beer, and I understand that. But take it for what it's worth. I'm just trying to show you how being unprepared works. You substitute whatever else here. It could be what you name it. Wow. That beer, when getting home from work, really, really relaxed me. Oh, it did. Are you prepared for what that could mean? It doesn't have to mean it, but it could mean. You could add just any of these other possibilities there. Now, let's go to your first meeting. I'm playing with a word picture here, your first meeting. Hello. You're very interesting. What's very interesting? That the way sin deceives us is by small steps of disobedience. And as Welsh and Shogren say, idolatry is instinctive when the century of our hearts is not vigilant. The point here then is this, that what you may meet that can capture you and hold you and create enslavement that at first, it's something that's very interesting to you and satisfying. That's important because we want to think, wow, I've, I'm, um, uh, pornography? No, no, that's repulsive. That's perversion. I'm not going there. But what else can you find that may be pulling you away that may be interesting? And then thirdly, there is infatuation. You make me feel better in control, whatever the substance or desire is. You make me feel better in control. The example, for example, adultery, that how do adulterous relationships get traction? Relationships become more intimate. Conversations test the limits. You look for ways to be alone. You find any excuse for touching. See how it incrementally works through? So you can say this with drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's marijuana. Wow, I haven't felt this mellow and relaxed and detached, and I can't remember when. This really calms me down. Oh, it does. Hmm. Gaming. Oh. I just can't, I feel, I feel so much power. I feel empowered. That's a big word today, whatever that means. Empowered, in control. And I just get on there and I can just, and I can go around this corner. I go, bow, bow, blow them away. I feel so in control. It's just, what a rush, an adrenaline rush. Gambling. Hmm. That uh, pitched penny stuff at the crack in the sidewalk, wow, that really gave me a buzz. Now, we probably have all done this at one time. Well, maybe guys more than girls. I don't think I've ever seen girls pitching pennies at cracks in the sidewalk. But um, We say, hey, no harm. I, I'm, saying, is it, I'm not saying is it wrong to pitch, pitch pennies at cracks in the sidewalk. No, what I am saying is that Monitor yourself and what comes as a result of it. Um, it can be then that $500 that I'm going to put on that game this Saturday. <whistles> Boy, does that really make me interested. And do I get an adrenaline rush when I'm watching that game? Got to be there and see that and have everybody over. I have the money. No harm. $500. And then the fourth movement here is worship or slavery. You are my life. You have been had. Whatever the, whatever the substance or desire, and it's got you in your, its grips. Here, listen to what Romans 6.19 says. You used to offer parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness. There's obsession. Just can't get it off your mind. Have more of it. Self-deception. 
not bothering me. There's the killing of the conscience. At first, the conscience barks at you. It blows the whistle. And you don't sleep as well. You're not going to watch that stuff right before you went to bed. And it, oh, it bothered you. And you tossed and you turned. Then the second time, eh, you go to sleep a little easier the second time. It doesn't bother you. And you got to have more of whatever it was. Here's what uh, Wells says. Sin is our allegiance to our own desires and the subsequent bondage to it. All right, let's go to number three. Overcoming a self or life-dominating sin is a confrontation with oneself. Here's how it works. That there is, tragically, a lot of theological confusion about our beliefs. And because of this confusion of theological beliefs, we walk in a fog Our confusion about beliefs makes it possible to believe the confused. You get the flow there? When you're confused theologically, when somebody else is confused, and they say what you can't sort out and discern, you're you're partners in the confusion. Now, what's the reason for this condition? Why is a confrontation with oneself often... Uh, it falls down right at this point where there is a failure to really understand oneself. Preaching is partially to blame. Yes, we who occupy the pulpit. That is, the connection process is not modeled in the pulpit. So people sit out there in a congregation week after week after week, and they've got all these, I don't know where on the scale, I'm not saying that you have a congregation full of substance abusers and alcoholics, but you may have varying kinds of enslavement to who knows what, and it's impairing relationships, and it's, it's altering your, your ability to honor God and to be effective for Him. And when you listen to sermons, you, it's just like that doesn't have anything to do with what I'm dealing with. And that really ought to haunt every preacher, I'll tell you that. That uh, that ought to, the people who are sitting out there with all kinds of issues. Is what I'm doing in any way related to what lives are like? But there's also the lack of serious thinking about the message. It may not be the pastor or the message. Is that we just, eh, we we do our little social duty. After all, we were... We were saved to go to church on Sunday, and that's sort of it. And I do that, so I'm good. And we don't really think through things. We don't discuss things. Also, a busy schedule. Entertainment. They can distract us from thinking things through. Oh, do we have ever a huge problem with this in our culture, don't we? There are just so many distractions. Are you plagued with that? I am. And my... I'm glad they didn't have, I'll be quite honest with you, I'm glad they didn't have the drugs available when I was a kid growing up that are available to a lot of parents today. I'll just leave it at that. That, uh, well, I was going to take a departure point and talk about boys, and one of my pet peeves is that we don't let boys be boys, and we're trying to make them all into girls in some and other sense. But that can contribute to this problem of enslavement. Also, moralism. <coughs> moralism creates an atmosphere of contentment with surface living. You just, you, you take care of the big stuff. I don't commit adultery. I haven't told a whopper of a lie. I can't remember when I did the last one. I haven't, I, haven't, I don't shoplift. So we can, <coughs> I'm not interested in gay marriage. Um, so we got a checklist we can begin to go through. And I would add also the growth of the psychotherapeutic industry in our culture and in the church has made the problem difficult in confronting ourselves. Because everybody's a victim now. I say everybody. That's the trend. and we're, we're victims of something. I don't know if you've been affected by this, this terrible uh, this airplane crash in the, uh, in the French Alps. And I'm, I'm appalled at the way in which the media handles this and they handle the co-pilot. Uh, 
you're, I'm finding, I find myself, well, we need to begin sympathizing with God. He, this guy, he didn't take his medicine. He was sick. He was really sick. He just killed 149 people. And yet you get this. We rush to do this with any number of things. Just watch, watch the news sometime. Immediately, like some of the first steps are to uh, eliminate responsibility in the therapeutic industry. All right, when truth, another reason why when overcoming a life-dominating sin is a confrontation with oneself, when truth goes in one ear and out the other, we are left with a spiritual headache. There are none so blind as those who will not see. We allow ourselves to live with contradictory beliefs. This church, I'm sure we could, if we, there were a test to measure this, we would be appalled at how we're living with things that just contra- contradict what we would write out in a belief statement. Do you live differently in, your pri- in private life than you do in public? How do you live when your wife is away for several days? What do you like when you're in another city? you really know yourself? Or are you comfortable with that self and that's just whatever? <clears throat> when we tell a lie, we listen to a lie. This is why often self-confrontation is, doesn't do so well. Now, God can use other people to bring us to our senses, and thank God he does. Thank God for teachers and for responsible Christians through the years who have played a role in my life. I think you would say the same. But, but how easily we can deceive ourselves. You know, James 1.14 says, how, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Can you spot your self-deceptions? You say, well, I don't have any. Well, um, I'll leave you with a question. We do have some. <laughs> Failing to take the Bible seriously is a ride on a bridge without guardrails. Ooh. God has provided all that is necessary for a believer to live a godly life. That was the second Peter chapter one, verse three. Do you take the Bible seriously enough? If so, then substance substance abuse and desires abuse that they're not going to be pushed out to the edge of your thinking and living and habits. You're going to be sensitized to them by Scripture. Do you take the Bible seriously enough? When's the last time you read the Bible through? Where you say, I don't have time. You're too busy. You're, I'll just say, we're messed up when we begin to talk like that. So we, things are upside down. Fourthly, Overcoming a life-dominating sin is a fight with a ruthless, deceptive, unmerciful, attractive enemy. Sin. And what I want to lay out before you is that there really are three big deceptions. Different kinds of deceptions. We can hide, we can sneak, we can blame, we can manipulate, we can justify We mislead, we can be silent, we can change the subject, we can avoid, we can rationalize, we can give give our word and not do it, and such things. Anything you want to keep secret. But lies betray a lack of trust in God. Track Jacob's life sometime. (laughs) One deception that's used by addicts, any kind, now, I'm not just thinking of substance abuse here, is, is blaming, blaming. Addicts may need a great deal of practice in accepting responsibility for their addictive behavior. This is usually one of the first battles that has to be fought. So that's where deception number one comes in. And it is, God's not good. And deep in our hearts, <coughs> we think, excuse me, we think God is holding out on us. Man, we read the story of Adam and Eve, think, well, they were really knuckleheads. But we have the same sort of potential for giving God a bad rap that 
God's holding something out on me. This is where Welch and Shogren say that an addiction is ultimately an infection of the imagination. Oh, that would be a subject all its own, just to talk about the Bible and imagination. What a powerful, powerful thing that it is. <clears throat> you know, God gave us the ability or gave us imagination. And it can be a wonderful thing if sanctified. But it can just be crushing and suffocating when it's not. We say, you don't understand. I have to do this so can I can have peace of mind. Or if I do it only once, it will prove that I have self-control. You ever heard that one? I have. I probably have told it to myself. All right, we've got to face the fact, and it's this, that an addiction is enslavement to any desire that leads one away from the desire to love God. Hope we can agree on that. But let's go to deception number two. I'm good, but occasionally do bad things. Uh-oh. You know why we're addicts? You know why we give ourselves to over to enslavement to substances and desires that take us away from love for God? It's because we're self-centered people. Go on, we all got to own up to it. Oh, this is the biggest battle we fight. Self-centered, selfish people. We've got to remember the truth about ourselves. Now, interestingly, the secular and much of Christian literature seems to work hard to say that addicts are not responsible for the cause of their problems. Have you ever noticed that? Deception number three. My idol is really harmless. I find the, there are metaphors in the book of Proverbs. There's quite a list of them, but they, here, you see this in these metaphors in Proverbs. A net is in, in full view of all the birds, or paths that lead to death. An ox going to the slaughter, that is on an, an, a lack of awareness of where you're going and where, where the, the enslavement to this desire substance is taking us. But there is hope. Now, let's go through that passage. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested above what you're able, but will with the temptation slash testing make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. All right. How can what are I'll just give you some suggestions. I don't have time to fully unpack that text. But what are some ways of escape? Well, if the problem is substance abuse of some kind, alcohol or drugs, then avoid old drinking and drugging buddies. Can we start there? What's the crowd you're hanging out with? Or how about calling a good friend for help? There's a legitimate escape. Or running from the temptation. I'm toying with the idea of doing one of these in this series, Overcoming Temptation. That would has its own uh, special demand for attention. All right, let's go to number five. Number five. This is the last one. Overcoming a life-dominating sin is a journey of following the king to the high ground of victory. Let's follow the king. The king can be known and wants to be known. Thank you, Lord. I have a flashpoint here. AA calls for some kind of relationship with or reliance on a higher power. And Christians have taken some sort of comfort in that as maybe they're getting us toward Christianity. But God is more than your private, subjective God. He is the king over all creation. He's not a pet that you can domesticate, that you... Some other substance or some emotion or some desire. He is the king of all creation. And obedience to Jesus Christ, it's fundamental to biblical change. You're going to deal with whatever it is that enslaves and captures and holds, and directs and sets the values and standards in your life rather than the desire to love God. We must remember that God is the one who initiates. We respond. God's holy. We're not. And we should not settle for anything but the very best. And you know what that very best is? 
God. Am I a God person in the sense that I'm seeking after him? And nothing is greater than to please God, take the pleasure in pleasing him. And we're called upon to choose between idols or God. And the death and resurrection of Christ is the basis for our battle with sin. And we're going to come celebrate next Sunday. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And let any, every one of us who is enslaved to some degree by some substance, some desire, the fact that he is risen indeed, that's the cry to be free, to be free, to be free and not be enslaved and to follow after God with passion and zeal for him. Oh, it's not just some social thing where we buy something special and wear it and have ham and whatever for lunch, great as that may be or may not be, that uh, what we are celebrating is the power of the resurrection. You know, that is the way power is set forth in the New Testament. When the New Testament wants to set up the ultimate picture of love, it's the cross, and power It's the resurrection of Christ. Knowing the king's forgiveness gives the freedom to see, hear, walk, and run. And I say running after God. Focused on him. I don't have time to go into the details on this. I just give it to you here for the sake of uh, calling your attention to this critical truth in 2 Peter 1.9. That the lack of assurance about God's forgiving grace creates a spiritual lockdown. And one of the consequences, which <clears throat> I've not taken the time to deal with this subject, and it's important, but I didn't have the time tonight. That would just be to go through this walk through the hall of horrors as to what these different addictions can end up creating. Uh, we could, well, all right, we, if we start going there, we could see that they're awful. They're terrible. Knowing the king's commandments unsheathes the sword of the spirit. You know his commandments? You memorize them? Do they pop in your mind? Come to your attention? The Bible is unapologetic when it comes to obedience. That's ground zero. I want to obey him. That's it. And I submit to you finally that there are two reasons for an appreciation for the attractiveness of God's commands. This is the beauty that I wish to follow. But there are two reasons for an appreciation of the attractiveness of God's commands. One is, is that it's a statement and indicative with regard to our culture. Law seems to have a bad reputation in the present Christian world. It's really law has gotten a bad rap. I understand that we are not, we don't want to elevate law keeping as the means of gaining God's approbation, and, and we appreciate the truth of grace, but let's not. God works in grace in that he says, do this, don't do this. Show how much you love me by doing this and not doing that. And then secondly, there is the human tendency to believe Satan's lies that God's not good. And we are attracted to that notion. Now, That is a fly-through, and I won't say I'm frustrated by this because this is the purpose, which is you give hope and traction. You, You follow me on that? There's hope. What is it in your life and my life that's pulling us away from love for God? What kind of habit? Now, I'd like to do this in conclusion then. I'll just mention some things that if you would like to track this and take this further, you may be very unusually uh, serious about addressing this. I'm not saying if you don't do these things, you aren't serious, but <clears throat> there may be a special need in your life. Um, maybe someone you know, someone in your family, a friend. Uh, and I mentioned these. I'm not saying that this is the only place you can go to get it, but I just I know what I know. That we did a series entitled Breaking Free back in 1996. That's available. Uh, somewhere. And it was, I think, about a five-part series entitled Breaking Free. And then we did a longer series back in 2002 on addictions. 
And with that said, I'll just mention some very helpful materials here. Uh, first, there is this book that, well, this goes back to the, um, the series on breaking free, Addictive Behavior, Ed Welch and Gary Stephen Shogren, A Short-Term Structured Model, helpful directive on the subject of breaking free from bondages, enslavement. Then there is Ed Welch's book, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. Um, this book, uh, a wonderful book for a Sunday school class. Uh, if somebody wanted to take it and do the, do the work with uh, um, over a 13-week period, something along that line. And then here is a book by Mark Shaw, The Heart of Addiction. I've met Mark. He was trained over at, uh, at um, Briarwood and the work there uh, with Dr. Howard Eirick and others. Um, and he deals primarily with the issue of uh, substance abuse. And it's very helpful. It's got, a, I was, in the back, there are some indices that could be very helpful. Like one is, uh, where is that, the... Uh, much is made in getting therapy and help um, from identifying with a group, a small group. And uh, yeah, here it is. He has an Appendix A. It's called a comparison chart. The biblical church and self-help groups. Self-help groups have become quite in vogue. And he has a chart here which says Christ's church. And then over here, the self-help groups comparatively speaking, and goes over to the next page as well. Quite an eye-opener. And I point this out because a lot of Christians are just, quite frankly, biblically impoverished when it comes to this issue. We get so much teaching to the contrary of what the Bible says that we... That's the problem, as I said at the first, when we come to the matter of defining our terms, addiction and compulsions and, and so forth. We've got a lot of work to do. And Welch says in his book that... We'll probably, we could be a generation just pulling back the layers of the cultural assumptions that have been put on top of this matter of addictions that have really uh, clouded the issue, obscured the real issues. It'll be a while of some serious biblical study on the part of Christians and Christians, Christian authors and pulling things back so we can see them in their, in their biblical light. And these are books that help to do that. Now, here's one that's it's been around a long time. It goes back to the late 70s, one of my favorite pastors, Erwin Lutzer, and How to Say No to a Stubborn Habit, and paperback, and um, it's uh, really quite readable, and it's a pastor's work, probably did the series on this in the pulpit at Moody Church, and he says, How to Say No to a Stubborn Habit, even when you feel like saying yes, <laughs> and I, I recommend those. Now, we're a little bit over, but do you have any questions, uh, issues you want to bring up? Yes, Jan. Oh, it, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you ought to pray for uh, Governor Mark Pence, uh, governor of Indiana, that uh, he, what he's having to face on this religious freedom bill that they've passed in India, he is just, the, the, the liberal media is really coming after him, the gay activist. It's just, it's an assault. It, uh and it's in a lot of places. And if I may mention something I would like to, please, in passing, as to how addictions get uh, reinforced or get dangled in front of the eyes of people for a new generation. And that is the appearance of the movie Fifty Shades of Grey. Now the book's been around a while. The movie Fifty Shades of Grey 
which was time for Valentine's Day. I'm looking at an article here that uh, I think this is one that Al Mohler wrote, that it is more important and lamentable event that many Christians may realize this, the movie, that what the movie represents is nothing less than the evolution of pornography in an age increasingly distant from a biblical vision of sexuality and human dignity. And one of the one of the ugly features of this movie is the way in which it snookered women because the storyline is of a woman. I understand I haven't seen the movie, but I read about these things. And uh, she's a virgin, and she gets romantically involved with this guy. And so here you get young girls um, that may not need to be young, just women, who starve for some male attention of some kind. And so, as a matter of fact, one of our staff members was, they were buying tickets for the movie um, Dropbox. And it happened to be at the time that the, the Fifty Shades of Grey movie was there. There was a dentist who was there buying tickets for Fifty Shades of Grey for everybody in his office and the staff, men and women. And women is getting snookered because, see, they get hooked by the romantic, the, the romance, the storyline, the narrative. And they, they get pulled in to sadomasochism. They get pulled into pornography that way because a woman ordinarily is not going to be drawn that way unless you get what really hooks her. So look for an uptick. Well, look for it. It's there, an uptick in the, the whole. The, you see, this subject of addiction to pornography, that's a study all its own. We haven't dealt with the different kinds of addictions that have their own unique features and battles to fight. And I will tell you, the addiction to pornography is one of the toughest ones. And you get you want to get your brain rewired and take a, maybe a good bit of a lifetime, depending on how far you go with it, to get yourself unwired. And may I say that in pleading with anyone who's listening to this or you know someone, that to recognize that you're drawn to some desire, some substance, and what, how dangerous it could be, my advice is just don't go there. Just don't play with it. Don't go there. And avoid it. And I mean, it's a battle. It is a battle. And I'm thinking, you know, I go on the internet and I'm just reading somebody's email or checking Facebook. And here's a picture of some girl that pops up there and says she wants to date me. Well, I've got a date. <laughs> My, thank you. And, but it just boom, 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 boom. It's just like, um, you're shot at uh, from all directions by these things. But I mentioned that movie as, as, as one that uh, is sad. It really is sad. And the way probably, I think, I wouldn't be surprised how many Christians probably go to see this. And, okay, we're five, six minutes over. Any other questions uh, other than the ones I ask myself and answer? Uh, let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts better than we ever will. Where we have our longings and interest. And those things that we, perhaps someone here tonight, Lord, some desire, some pleasure. Maybe a desire for attention. It could be just the satisfaction of just having everything neat and organized. And maybe everybody around us is miserable because of we, we're so demanding. But Lord, the list is endless, it seems. And we need your help, Lord to be savvy, alert, wise. Thank you for your patience and gentleness with us. And give us the grace now, Lord, to break free where we need to, where we do need to break free. In Christ's name, amen.